This is On the Front Lines, a workplace law newsletter for May 2019. Best Privacy Practices for Employer-Issued Fitness Trackers by Larissa Aber. Workplace technology has been ever-changing in the past few decades, from desktop computers to mobile phones to laptop computers to smartphones. Now, smartwatches are capable of receiving text messages and phone calls, tracking sleep, tracking daily fitness activity, and more. What does it mean for employees' privacy when the technology is advancing at such an astronomical rate? The extent of an employee's right to privacy. An employee's right to privacy largely depends on where and how the employer is accessing personal information. For instance, most employees believe their online social media accounts, whether set to public or not, are private, and their employers should not view their accounts, even if the employee is, quote, trolling the company, and that employment decisions should not be made based on online comments. However, as we know now, Employees cannot expect such privacy, particularly when employees access their social media accounts on work-issued devices, such as laptops or smartphones. Similarly, employees may expect a right of privacy when it comes to their personal email accounts, but for the same reason, if accessed on a work-issued device, that right of privacy dwindles. In fact, employers often require employees to provide them access to accounts or services the employer provides. Even where states have stepped in to regulate employee use of online accounts, Employers' rights generally are respected when the employer owns or subsidizes the device. For example, the Wisconsin Social Media Protection Act restricts employer actions that interfere with employees' online activities, but it does not prevent employers from requiring that their employees provide access to information on an electronic device, e.g. computer or cell phone, supplied or paid for by the employer. But what happens when employees' health data collides with devices provided by the employer? Technology and Healthy Living in the Workplace Many employers have committed to promoting healthy living by implementing health and wellness programs ranging from smoking cessation programs to, quote, biggest loser weight loss challenges. The goal is to help employees stay fit and healthy because healthy employees tend to both be more productive and to incur fewer health care costs. According to the National Council on Strength and Fitness, employers save an average of $6 for every $1 spent on employee wellness. Recently, employers have also begun providing employees with fitness trackers, such as watches and phone application subscriptions, and encouraging them to voluntarily sign up for digital health monitoring. Employers also may request that employees complete a biometric health screening that identifies certain health goals. Typically, employees are promised cash, reduced premiums, or reimbursements for copays and deductibles, which have increased significantly as health care costs continue to rise. Fitness trackers are steeply discounted or even handed out free if the employees sign up for an employer-sponsored health and wellness program. According to the Kaiser Family Foundation's annual survey, 21% of employers that offer health insurance collected data from wearable devices last year, up from 14% in 2017. This compilation of employee data is part of a concerted effort to improve the health of an employer's workforce. As a result, employers have access to the information transmitted from the fitness trackers. Depending on the device's sophistication, the employer can see how many steps the employee takes, the distance walked, the hours the employee spends in a sedentary state, 24-7 heart rate, sleep duration, and quality. If an employee is too sedentary, some fitness trackers will alert the employee to get moving. Or, depending on the setup of the fitness tracker, the reminder or check-in call can come directly from the boss. One brand in particular has developed a program especially for its corporate clients. 
Fitbit has designed an activity and sleep tracker called Fitbit Inspire for the company's corporate wellness health plan and health systems partners and customers of their organizations, participants, and members. I.e., if you are not employed by or a member of one of these organizations, you will not be able to obtain one of these trackers. Fitbit added a call service that will reach out to individual workers via text messages and phone calls when the employee's data shows that they are falling short of fitness goals. Concerns with data collection Opponents of the employer-provided fitness tracker tend to believe that employers will inappropriately utilize this information received from the fitness tracker. Organizations concerned with employee privacy suspect the use of fitness trackers and the information generated from fitness trackers will cause employers to favor healthier employees over others. Questions are being asked about how much data the tracker can obtain and share with employers. Will employers be able to tell who smokes, who uses the bathroom the most and may be pregnant or have prostate trouble, who visits the vending machine or kitchen the most? Many fitness trackers have GPS capability, and some employers use GPS to track employees' movements while working. But will employers begin tracking what employees do on the weekends or in their free time? Will employers be able to track drug use via these devices? If employers are accessing this data, are they studying it and making decisions based on the information? Additionally, many opponents believe that employees do not really have a choice in opting into their employer's health and wellness programs. While the employer-provided fitness tracker trend is growing at a significant rate, it is unlikely the law will advance as rapidly. However, there is current legislation that can affect what an employer can do with information obtained by fitness trackers, and there are best practices that employers can implement to mitigate risk. While the U.S. Supreme Court already has suggested that employees may lack any reasonable expectation of privacy in employer-provided technological equipment, some states have passed legislation regarding limitations surrounding employees' privacy. In fact, some states have passed legislation limiting what employers can do with employees' biometric data, e.g. the Illinois Biometric Information Privacy Act. Employer Best Practices While there are some legal risks involved in outfitting your workforce with fitness trackers and the law is not fully developed, there are ways to mitigate these risks. You should not require employees to use fitness trackers or fine employees who opt out of the program. You should obtain written consent from employees who wish to enroll in the program before they are issued fitness trackers. You should also implement a policy relating to the proper use of information obtained from fitness trackers. The policy should describe the reason the company implemented the program, the nature of the tracking device, the data being tracked, how you will use and not use the data, and how you will keep the data secure. Notice to the employee is key when establishing what privacy employees can reasonably expect. Additionally, in this age of data breaches, the more data fitness trackers record, the greater the risk the information will be compromised. Privacy risks are relatively low for fitness trackers that collect nondescript data such as activity, steps, and calories. You should consider providing fitness trackers that only track basic, relevant fitness information. Additionally, you should limit the nucleus of individuals who may review the data and ensure that the Information Technology Department has implemented data security protocols that protect this information just as rigorously as you protect trade secret data. You should also consider obtaining fitness tracker information through a service that limits how you will receive the information. For example, Fitbit's privacy agreement aims to prevent employers from accessing information employees have not agreed to share. Instead of sending specific results regarding individual employees, employer program administrators receive reports in aggregate form. If you cannot determine exactly whose fitness information you are reviewing at any given time, you can mitigate risk of privacy or discrimination complaints based on information obtained from fitness trackers. Bottom line, 
Employers that have implemented or are interested in implementing health and wellness programs that include providing fitness trackers to employees should remain concerned and committed to protecting employees' personal and health information and should refrain from inappropriately using employee data obtained by fitness trackers. You should work hand-in-hand with your employment council to ensure that you are addressing all of these concerns and complying with local laws. For more information, contact the author at lhebert at fisherphillips.com or 713-292-5603. A version of this article originally appeared in law360.com. The ABCs of CBD for Employers by Howard Mavity An increasingly common series of questions employers have been asking of late relate to their employees' use of CBD. Will use of CBD products impair employees? If an employee or applicant tests positive on a drug test and blames the seemingly innocuous use of CBD, what should we do? Should it be permissible to allow use of CBD products in a zero-tolerance workplace? A primer on CBD. Before diving into an analysis of these and similar questions, it's important to get on the same page regarding the substance. Cannabidiol, or CBD, is a chemical found in marijuana and its closest relative, hemp. Pure CBD does not contain tetrahydrocannabinol, THC, the psychoactive ingredient found in marijuana that produces a high. The most common CBD formulation started as oil, but CBD is also sold as an extract, a vaporized liquid, and an oil-based capsule. CBD-infused beverages are probably the most common CBD product, but use of CBD-based cosmetic and skincare products is surging in both retail stores and online. Currently, the only CBD product approved by the Food and Drug Administration is a prescription oil called Epidiolex, approved to treat two types of epilepsy. Aside from Epidiolex, state laws on the use of CBD vary. While CBD is being studied as a treatment for a wide range of conditions, including Parkinson's disease, schizophrenia, diabetes, multiple sclerosis, and anxiety, research supporting the drug's benefits is still limited. However, the FDA recently announced hearings on the potential lawful use of CBD in cosmetics, food, and supplements. What's the difference between CBD and THC? The technical explanation regarding the difference between CBD and THC centers around the fact that all cannabinoids, both CBD and THC, interact with specific targets on cells in the body, the CB1 and CB2 receptors. CB1 receptors are found mainly in the brain and are important for learning, coordination, sleep, pain, brain development, and other functions. CB2 receptors are found mostly in the immune system. CBD has very little effect on both CB1 and CB2 receptors. This is probably why it does not make people high and is not mind-altering. In fact, it may even blunt some of THC's psychotropic effects. Most marijuana grown for recreational use is very low in CBD content and high in THC. As Medical News Today explained, quote, CBD is an entirely different compound from THC, and its effects are very complex. It is not psychoactive, meaning it does not produce a high or change a person's state of mind. CBD and Impairment While you should consult with your medical advisor on specific situations, you generally should not be concerned about your workers becoming impaired from CBD use. A 2015 NIH, National Institute on Drug Abuse, NIDA, paper explained why CBD should not impair employees. 
Quote, different cannabinoids can have very different biological effects. CBD, for example, does not make people high and is not intoxicating. And there is reason to believe it may have a range of uses in medicine, including in the treatment of seizures and other neurological disorders. However, that's not to say that CBD will never present a problem for you. Much about the substance is still unknown, as stated in a 2015 National Institute of Health analysis. Quote, Marijuana has over 500 chemicals in total, including the 100 or so cannabinoids, so we will still be learning about this plant for years to come. A particular problem stems from the fact that your workers might not know exactly what else is in the CBD product they are using. Most CBD products are sold as supplements and are not regulated by the FDA, meaning they could also have various other substances mixed in. For example, is delta-9-tetrahydrocannabinol, THC, present? What else could be added to the mix? A recent study of 84 CBD products bought online showed that more than a quarter of the products contained less CBD than labeled, but that THC was found in 18 products. Research published in the Journal of the American Medical Association revealed that 43% of CBD oils tested had more THC in them than labeled. Positive drug tests. This means that one of your workers or applicants might think they are staying on the right side of the law when using a CBD product, but could inadvertently ingest substances that violate your valid drug policies. Barry Sample, the Director of Science and Technology for the drug testing laboratory Quest Diagnostics, recently observed that the government is not ensuring the level of THC remains low because CBD oil is not regulated in the United States. Therefore, he said, if somebody is using a CBD oil that contains residual THC in it, they very likely could test positive on a urine drug test, not because of the CBD itself, but because of a contaminant that is in the oil. While CBD itself would not report positive for marijuana or marijuana metabolite, if the CBD product used by your employee or applicant contains THC at a sufficiently high concentration, it is possible, depending on usage patterns, that the use of these products could cause a positive urine drug test result for marijuana metabolites. For example, in some states, CBD may contain up to 5% THC. So what should you do if an applicant or employee tests positive and claims they only used CBD? Unless an employee is using the sole FDA-approved medical product, a confirmed positive for THC means the employee has probably ingested THC, even though they may have assumed that a CBD product would not result in a positive test or lead to any sort of impairment. The burden would then be on the employee to prove that they did not ingest THC, and you would need to consider how to respond to such a positive test on a case-by-case -case basis. Use at the workplace Because the FDA does not regulate CBD products other than Epidolex, an employee has no guarantee that their supposedly pure CBD product does not contain THC. You should educate employees about this problem and explain that even if they advise you in advance that they are using a CBD product that is not supposed to impair them or create a safety threat, you will have to take action if they later test positive for THC. Generally, it takes more of a food or drink containing THC to impair an employee or to result in a positive test, but there are no guarantees. Similarly, CBD creams, oils, and cosmetics containing THC would be less likely to result in a positive test result. The research on these products may be too sparse for an employee to risk their employment. Five important takeaways. The five most important things you should keep in mind regarding CBD use and the workplace. One, while CBD itself should not contain amounts of THC to test positive, 
the CBD supplement used by your worker may actually contain THC, which does impair workers and would violate most drug and alcohol policies. 2. Individually evaluate each situation of CBD use that comes to your attention. Discuss with your testing provider whether CBD will show up under the drug panel tested if no THC is present. Consult with your labor and employment counsel if you end up considering taking or not taking action against an employee or applicant because of CBD use. 3. In your drug education efforts, explain to employees that almost all CBD products are not regulated by the FDA and they have no meaningful guarantee of what's in the supplement. In other words, those using CBD products need to know that they are using them at their own risk. If THC turns out to be present, they will violate employer policies. 4. Under a Department of Transportation-mandated interpretation, a positive test for THC will not be excused by the fact that the product was a CBD product or described as medical marijuana. 5. Finally, Three states' courts have held that their state's medical marijuana laws require an employer to engage in an accommodation analysis of whether their medical marijuana user should be accommodated. It's not clear how CBD product use would be treated. You should consult with your employment attorney before taking action in these locations. For more information, contact the author at hmavity at fisherphillips.com or 404-240-4204. The Trend to Toss Arbitration Is the Practice Past Its Prime? by Anthony E. Guzman II. Is arbitration even worth it anymore? In the recent past, most employers would have said yes without a second thought. Curiously, however, some of the nation's most prominent companies have recently been moving away from this practice and ending mandatory arbitration policies that had been in place for over a decade, begging the question of why now? Based on this sudden change, it's important to make sure you understand the reasons behind this trend, the pros and cons of arbitration itself, and the upcoming potential changes in the legal landscape to look out for. What is arbitration, and can we still require it? Arbitration is a valuable alternative to litigation. In short, agreements to arbitrate require the parties to pursue their claims before a private arbitrator, such as a retired judge, outside of the normal court system. By doing so, the parties are often able to keep the matters confidential and avoid the delays and costs traditionally associated with bringing claims through the courts. As a result, many employers often choose to require their employees to consent to mandatory arbitration as a standard condition of their employment. With few exceptions, these employment arbitration agreements are permissible across the country. The Supreme Court has consistently upheld the validity of mandatory agreements, and local federal courts have generally followed its lead and applied a permissive standard when ruling on their enforceability. In one of the bigger victories in recent memory, the U.S. Supreme Court upheld the validity of class action waivers in last May's Epic Systems decision, permitting employers to require workers to bring their arbitration claims on an individual basis and blocking class arbitration claims. And just a few weeks ago, in its LAMPS Plus decision, the court found that ambiguity in an agreement does not give rise to consent to class arbitration, making individual arbitration the default result. Given the clear benefit that can be found in arbitration generally, and class waivers specifically, and given the receptive nature that courts have provided for enforcing such agreements, it should be a no-brainer to adopt them as widely as possible, correct? 
Why are companies moving away from arbitration? Surprisingly, however, in the wake of this success, more and more companies have started to move away from mandatory arbitration agreements, the exact opposite of what you'd expect. The reason seems to be twofold. Public pressure in the wake of hashtag MeToo movement. Most notably, the recent rise of the hashtag MeToo movement galvanized substantial swaths of the population against the practice after it was revealed that arbitration agreements and the confidentiality associated therewith kept victims of sexual harassment silent by blocking them from the public court system and sweeping their claims under the proverbial rug. Enraged and emboldened, social activists worked to shame companies for their use of the agreements and demanded an end to the practice. Visibility of these disputes was high, and several prominent companies soon found themselves in the crosshairs. For example, a group of Harvard Law students organized a protest against one of the nation's largest law firms for their use of the agreements, threatening to deprive them of some of the industry's top talent. Around the same time, Google saw similar social outcry after over 20,000 employees worldwide orchestrated a coordinated walkout to protest the company's alleged misuse of the agreements to stifle harassment claims. In the weeks and months following, both organizations agreed to change their policies, with other large companies quickly following suit in a presumed attempt to avoid the onslaught of social ire. The Rising Cost of Enforcing Arbitration Agreements Apart from the negative publicity, many companies are choosing to forego enforcement of their arbitration agreements for economic reasons. Recently, employers have continued to find themselves mired in costly disputes over mundane decisions related to the arbitration agreement, such as where the arbitration should be held or who the arbitrator should be, costing unreasonably high amounts of time and money even before the parties start arguing about their actual claims. Even when companies get to the actual arbitration, though, they then find themselves stuck with the bill just for the arbitrator's time, sometimes as high as $50,000. Some employers who found victory with class waivers now find themselves barraged with dozens or hundreds or even thousands of individual claims and are stuck footing the bill on the defense of all of these claims. And because choosing the arbitrator is generally done by both parties, parties report that arbitrators have a tendency to split the baby on the claim themselves lest they run the risk of upsetting either side and jeopardizing their own future business. In short, some companies are coming to the realization that, in many cases, arbitration just isn't worth the hassle. So what should we do? As the adage goes, however, you should never throw the baby out with the bathwater. Arbitration agreements can still be a valuable tool to protect the interests of both parties. A few bad apples aside, in many cases, the confidentiality of arbitration can act as a shield for employees who prefer discretion and wish to cultivate a prominent career without having the looming shadow of past litigation forever tied to their names. Accordingly, it's important to take note of a few things when determining whether arbitration agreements are right for your company. First, arbitration agreements don't have to cover all claims under the sun. You could easily choose to have an agreement in place for relatively banal claims, like wage or hour disputes, while still allowing employees to bring more sensitive claims, like harassment, in court. By doing this, you can show their employees that you understand and firmly oppose the past misuses of arbitration agreement that the hashtag MeToo movement brought to light. Second, arbitration agreements can always be drafted to give employees a choice. A big part of the stigma with these agreements comes from their mandatory or forced nature. Making arbitration voluntary and explaining the pros and cons to employees openly can eliminate this problem and make sure that both parties understand and are satisfied with the choice. Conclusion 
In short, you have a multitude of options when determining which form of arbitration agreement, if any, is right for your company. Context is important, and what's right for one company may not be right for another. As debate over the issue picks up, however, it's important to keep up to date on where the legal landscape stands. Congress is currently considering legislation known as the Forced Arbitration Injustice Reversal Act, which aims to potentially extinguish forced arbitration altogether. And while passage is unlikely in the current political climate, it's good to keep in mind that this is an issue on Congress's radar and one that may be subject to change in the near future, a fact that you should take into account as you move forward in crafting, amending, or eliminating your company's arbitration policies. For more information, contact the author at aguzman at fisherphillips.com or 415-490-9028. This has been On the Front Lines, a workplace law newsletter for May 2019. This newsletter is not intended to be and should not be construed as legal advice for any particular situation. The contents are intended for general information purposes only, and you are urged to consult counsel concerning your own situation and any specific legal questions you may have. the Fisher Phillips Healthcare Update Newsletter for 2019, volume number two. Twelve-step plan to help navigate OSHA's continued focus on workplace violence by Pamela Williams. Healthcare employees are nearly five times more likely than workers in other fields to be victims of workplace violence, according to federal government statistics. Because of this disparity, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, OSHA, issued guidelines in 2015 for preventing workplace violence in the healthcare and social services industries. Since that time, the agency has heightened its focus in this area and has issued an increased number of employer citations relating to incidents involving workplace violence. Interestingly enough, despite OSHA's emphasis on workplace violence prevention, there is currently no specific OSHA standard addressing such hazards. As a result, the agency enforces employer obligations to prevent workplace violence through the General Duty Clause. This statutory section requires employers to keep their workplaces, quote, free from recognized hazards that are causing or are likely to cause death or serious physical harm to employees. OSHA has cited several healthcare employers for violating the General Duty Clause after an incident of workplace violence. For example, a Massachusetts psychiatric facility was recently issued citations of more than $200,000 under the General Duty Clause based on OSHA's conclusion that it did not provide a place of employment free from recognized hazards that were causing or likely to cause death or serious physical harm to employees, including verbal threats of assault, physical assaults, choking, punches, kicks, human bites, scratches, and or pulling of hair by patients. While the significant amount of this citation may have been in part due to other factors, including potential issues surrounding prior inspections and resolutions, it indicates the heightened level of scrutiny OSHA is placing on workplace violence in the healthcare industry. 12 Proactive Measures You Can Take to Reduce Workplace Violence Risks Workplace violence has increased such that concerns regarding prevention must remain at the forefront of the American consciousness. As OSHA continues to focus on workplace violence in the healthcare industry, 
you should take proactive measures to reduce risk to your employees. While implementing and training employees on a company policy prohibiting workplace violence is a good start, it is only the beginning. You should consider adopting the following 12 additional measures, which have been specifically recommended by OSHA as acceptable abatements of hazards, as part of a lasting commitment to prevent workplace violence. 1. Implement a written workplace violence prevention program, which includes information about how employees can obtain medical attention and emotional support following incidents of workplace violence. 2. Analyze and identify potential areas of concern and risk factors, including available points of entry and exit, items that could be used as weapons, presence of secured and locked rooms or units, and spaces that could pose a risk of entrapment. 3. Include a mandatory reporting requirement in your written workplace violence program. 4. Identify patients and clients with known violent behavior and histories. 5. Clearly communicate recent violent incidents to any employee who could potentially be exposed, including those who may not have regular contact with the patient or client involved in the incident. 6. Create and implement a buddy system to aid in dealing with a potentially violent patient or client, where all staff are able to request and obtain double coverage when necessary, including but not limited to situations where an employee communicates that they feel unsafe being alone with a particular patient or client. 7. Provide all employees with an easily accessible and reliable way to call for help when needed, including while on a home visit. 8. Train all employees on effective and appropriate methods about how to respond during a workplace violence incident. 9. Train all employees to recognize aggressive behavior exhibited by patients and clients and on techniques for timely de-escalating the behavior. 10. Instruct all employees about risk factors that cause or contribute to assaultive behaviors, including threats of violence. 11. Develop and maintain a record-keeping system to ensure that all workplace violence incidents are investigated and that post-incident debriefing and root cause analysis occurs. 12. Regularly review and update your prevention program. Although these measures may not provide a surefire panacea for all incidences of workplace violence, they will help you strengthen your workplace violence prevention program. Additionally, by adopting these measures, you will be in a better position if and when OSHA ends up enacting a workplace violence standard. For more information, contact the author at pwilliams at fisherphillips.com or 713-292-5622. Workplace Violence Can Lead to General Duty Clause Violations by Megan R. Ucellis In a matter of first impression, the Occupational Safety and Health Review Commission recently ruled that the Occupational Safety and Health Act's General Duty Clause requires employers to protect employees from incidents of workplace violence. In Secretary of Labor v. Integra Health Management Incorporated, the Commission affirmed a citation issued to a social services provider after one of its employees was fatally stabbed by a mentally ill client. Client visit turned deadly leads to violation. Integra Health Management Incorporated employs service coordinators to assist its clients, or members, in receiving and maintaining proper medical care. Those receiving treatment have chronic medical conditions, such as mental illness, and have a history of avoiding treatment and taking their prescribed medications. The service coordinator locates members, informs them of the company's services, and secures their consent to accept services. The service coordinator then maintains frequent contact with the member and helps them seek medical treatment. 
Integra provides training to its service coordinators, including an internet-based course with a session on in-home and community safety, containing presentations on screening the dangerous member and safety in the community. While the training instructs service coordinators to gather critical history about previous unsafe behaviors, Integra did not mandate this information to be obtained, nor did it prevent member background checks at the time. Integra also conducts in-person training sessions, utilizes a voluntary buddy system allowing employees to attend home visits together, and maintains a workplace violence prevention policy. In 2012, a recent college graduate with no prior experience in social work or working with mentally ill individuals began working at Integra. After her training, she was assigned to complete mandatory home assessments with a client in Dade City, Florida, who suffered from schizophrenia. Unknown to the employee and Integra, the member had a prior criminal record, including convictions for aggravated assault and battery. After several home visits with the member, the employee submitted reports to her supervisors in which she identified disturbing behavior from the member and that she was uncomfortable being alone with him. Nonwithstanding, on December 10, 2012, the employee returned to the member's home to complete her required assessment. During her visit, the member attacked the employee and fatally stabbed her nine times. OSHA issued Integra a citation alleging a violation of the General Duty Clause, concluding that it exposed its employees, quote, to the hazard of being physically assaulted by members with a history of violent behavior. Following a hearing, an administrative law judge affirmed the citation, and Integra appealed the decision to the Occupational Safety and Health Review Commission. On March 4, 2019, the commission upheld the finding and ruled against the employer. Commission Finds Violation the General Duty Clause of the OSH Act states that each employer shall furnish to each of his employees employment and a place of employment which are free from recognized hazards that are causing or are likely to cause death or serious physical harm to his employees. In order to demonstrate a General Duty Clause violation, the agency must prove 1. The employer failed to keep the workplace free of a hazard to which employees were exposed. 2. The hazard was recognized. Three the hazard was causing or was likely to cause death or serious physical harm, and four, there was a feasible and useful method to correct the hazard. The commission concluded that the workplace violence could be included as a violation under the general duty clause. First, it found that workplace violence is covered by the general duty clause where there is a direct nexus between the work being performed and the risk of workplace violence. In this specific case, Given that service coordinators meet face-to-face -face with members, many of whom have mental illness and violent backgrounds, it found that the direct nexus test was met. Next, the commission decided that Integra undoubtedly recognized the hazard of a physical attack against its employees, and that such hazard could cause death or serious bodily harm. The commission relied on evidence of the training provided to the victim, the specific concerns noted in reports submitted to her supervisors, and other threatening incidents previously told to Integra supervisors. Finally, the Commission determined that practical proposed methods of abatement could have significantly reduced the likelihood of workplace violence. The Commission relied on expert testimony and the fact that, during the appeal, Integra implemented many of the recommended abatements, including the creation of a workplace violence prevention program, employing new standards to evaluate members' behavioral history, and reliable ways of communicating information about members with violent backgrounds to employees. Time to take action. This decision makes clear that healthcare industry employers have a responsibility to manage the risk of workplace violence under the General Duty Clause. 
You can start by reviewing your safety policies and procedures and employee training programs to confirm they effectively reduce employees' exposure to patient assaults. Most importantly, you must screen patients for violent tendencies, communicate any relevant information to employees, and train employees on how to safely deal with and respond to violent patients. House Democrats are advocating for more protection for healthcare and social service workers with a new bill referred to as the Workplace Violence Prevention for Healthcare and Social Service Workers Act, introduced by Representative Joe Courtney, Democrat, Connecticut. The proposed law was heard before a House subcommittee in February and could reach the House floor by May. It would require OSHA to issue a standard that requires healthcare and social service industry employers to develop and implement a comprehensive workplace violence prevention plan. We will monitor its progress and provide updates on any developments. For more information, contact the author at mucellus at fisherphillips.com or 502-561-3963. This has been the Fisher & Phillips Healthcare Update Newsletter for 2019, number two. This newsletter is not intended to be and should not be construed as legal advice for any particular fact situation. The contents are intended for general information purposes only, and you are urged to consult counsel concerning your own situation and any specific legal questions you may have. This is the Fisher & Phillips Dealership Update Newsletter for 2019, number two. USDOL issues proposed new overtime rule, likely to go into effect this time, by Joseph W. Ambash and Jeffrey A. Fritz. You may recall several years ago when the United States Department of Labor, USDOL, issued revised regulations concerning the white-collar exemptions to minimum wage and overtime under the Fair Labor Standards Act, FLSA, that were slated to go into effect on December 1, 2016. Among other things, those revisions significantly would have increased the minimum salary requirement for employees who qualify for the executive, administrative, or professional exemptions from $455 per week, which annualizes to $23,660, to $913 per week, which annualizes to $47,476 per year. You also may recall the business community challenged those regulations in courts and, ultimately, a court prohibited the USDOL from enforcing them. Since that time, the USDOL went back to the drawing board and, on March 7, 2019, finally issued notice of a new proposed rule. The current proposal appears to represent a middle ground. Most importantly, it would increase the minimum salary requirement to $679 per week, which annualizes to $35,308. While the new proposed rule is not yet in effect, it is likely to go into effect in the not-so-distant future. What do dealerships need to know about this current proposal? No effect on salesman, partsman, mechanic, or commission-paid exemptions. As you know, the FLSA contains a number of overtime exemptions in addition to the white-collar exemptions that may apply to dealership employees, including salesmen, partsmen, mechanics, and those who earn a majority of their compensation over a representative period in the form of commissions. Fortunately, the USDOL's new rules have no impact whatsoever on these exemptions, and dealers can continue to rely on them as they have in the past. The white-collar exemptions 
To qualify for a white-collar exemption, an employee must, in the first instance, satisfy its duties test. For example, to qualify for the executive exemption, the employee, in fact, must 1. be primarily engaged in managing your dealership or a customarily recognized department or subdivision thereof, 2. customarily and regularly direct the work of at least two full-time employees or their equivalent, and 3. have the authority to hire or fire employees or make recommendations on such issues afforded significant weight. Similarly, to qualify for the administrative exemption, the employee's primary duty must, in fact, 1. be the performance of office or non-manual work directly related to the management or general business operations of your dealership, and 2. include the exercise of discretion and independent judgment with respect to matters of significance. Fortunately, the U.S. DOL's new proposed regulations do not impact the white-collar exemption duties test. If an employee meets the duties test for a white-collar exemption to be exempt, they must also satisfy the salary or guarantee basis test. That is, they must be paid a guaranteed amount per week regardless of the number of hours they work, subject to very narrow exemptions beyond the scope of this article. Since 2004, the salary threshold has been $455 per week. As noted above, the new rules will increase that to $679 per week. Miscellaneous Other Changes In addition to increasing the white-collar salary threshold to $679, the new rules also will 1. provide that employers may attribute non-discretionary bonuses, commissions, or other incentive payments to satisfy 10% of the salary threshold amount. Two. Increase the total annual compensation required to qualify for the highly compensated employee exemption from $100,000 to $147,414. And three, indicate a commitment by the U.S. DOL to review and increase the salary threshold periodically. What does all this mean, and what should you do? In the likely event this rule ultimately goes into effect, employees currently exempt as executives, administrators, or professionals generally speaking, your managers and higher-level office employees, earning less than $679 per week salary guarantee or $611.10 plus at least $67.90 in incentive compensation, will no longer be exempt from overtime pay. They will be entitled to one and a half times their regular rate of pay for all hours worked over 40 each week. To maintain the exempt status of any such employees, you will need to increase their salary guarantee accordingly. In light of the U.S. DOL's announcement, you should consider reviewing your white-collar employees' pay plans to determine what, if any, changes you will need to make to ensure compliance if and when this new rule goes into effect. Focus particular attention on your managers to ensure you are in position to pay them a sufficient salary, separate and apart from commissions, which largely don't count in this analysis. Failure to comply with the FLSA can result in significant time spent defending against class-action lawsuits, hefty judgments, and sizable attorney's fees and costs. For more information, contact the authors at jambash at fisherphillips.com, 617-532-9320, or jfritz at fisherphillips.com, 617-532-9325. How to Build a Respectful Workplace in Your Dealership by D. Albert Brannan There is honor and dignity in work. Successful dealerships understand this axiom and build workplaces where their employees are respected. As a result, they experience lower employee turnover, less employment-related litigation, and fewer problems caused by meddling unions. 
their employees are also happier and more productive. This article outlines 10 tips for building a respectful workplace and reaping these benefits. 1. Practice the Golden Rule The Golden Rule says to treat others as you expect to be treated. Dealerships should treat their employees with the same level of respect and appreciation as they want from employees. On the other hand, dealerships who disrespect their employees will not get the most out of them. Their employees will be less productive, less loyal, and more likely to turn to an outside union to represent them against the employer. Walk the walk, don't just talk the talk. It is not enough for dealerships to have the proper policies or to say the right things to employees. Employees are smart enough to understand when actions are not consistent or in conflict with written or spoken words. In fact, courts even recognize that when a manager's actions undermine the dealership's policies on harassment, discrimination, or retaliation, the actions control and the dealership loses certain affirmative defenses that might have otherwise been available for the organization to avoid or at least reduce its liability. 3. Lead by example. Another way to say walk the walk is to lead by example. In history, the greatest generals led their troops from the front. They never expected of their troops anything more than they were willing to do in battle. In the workplace, managers should lead by example and never expect anything of their employees that they are not committed to doing themselves. When leading by example, managers build their own credibility with employees and gain their respect. 4. Spend time with employees every day and be accessible. To fully understand employee perspectives and be aware of changing employee sentiments, Managers need to spend time with employees and to be accessible every day. Accessibility gives employees confidence that their managers will be available to help resolve any job-related issues if or when they arise. It may also help the manager spot early warning signs of union activity or employee claims of mistreatment, favoritism, discrimination, harassment, or retaliation. 5. Be empathetic. Employees have unique concerns, goals, and interests. Oftentimes, those are not the same as their managers. In fact, they can be quite different. Professor Kenneth Kovac of George Mason University has spent decades trying to help supervisors understand the differences between rank-and-file employees in an effort to help supervisors better manage their direct reports. A key element in appreciating where employees are coming from is for managers to have empathy for their employees. 6. Establish formal communication channels. At a minimum, dealerships need to have the right formal communication channels in place. Formal channels may include, among others, group meetings and written communications, such as informative websites, intranets, newsletters, or letters to employees' homes about important news employees and their families should know. More sophisticated formal channels may include skip channel meetings, hotlines, or 360-degree reviews. Having these types of channels in place objectively signals to employees that their employer respects its workers enough to keep them informed and to listen to them. 7. Keep commitments. Making promises or commitments to employees and then failing to follow through on them is a sign of disrespect. Managers do not have to solve every employee grievance or concern, but if a response or specific action is promised, the manager must deliver. 8. Tell employees what you want. Employees respect bosses who honestly tell staff what is expected of them. When managers sugarcoat or dance around problems or fail to take decisive action, they lose the respect of their employees. Likewise, when dealerships keep employees in the dark, it breeds disrespect and distrust of the dealership. 9. Don't surprise employees. Employees hate surprises like sudden changes in assignments, schedules, mandatory overtime, or terminations. 
When dealerships spring changes on employees without adequate notice, it signals a blatant disregard and disrespect for the fact that employees have lives and obligations outside of the workplace. 10. Expect the best from employees. Dealerships that expect the best from their employees and believe in their ability to succeed generally invest more resources in them. This type of supportive, positive work environment tends to manifest the dealership's genuine respect for its employees. Likewise, employees tend to reciprocate with more respect for their dealership. Conclusion. Dealerships must work hard to create and sustain a respectful work environment. Respect does not come easy, and it can be lost in a second. But when employees believe their dealership respects them, they are more likely to succeed at their jobs, and ultimately they create fewer practical and legal problems for their dealership. For more information, contact the author at dabrannon at fisherphillips.com or 404-240-4235. This has been the Fisher & Phillips Dealership Update Newsletter for 2019, number two. This newsletter is not intended to be and should not be construed as legal advice for any particular fact situation. The contents are intended for general information purposes only, and you are urged to consult counsel concerning your own situation and any specific legal questions you may have. Thank you for listening to the Fisher & Phillips May Newsletters. Tune in next time for the hospitality, benefits, and education updates.